All right, let's wrap it up. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to close up your computer for a second. I want to talk to you. We're going to do the last thing in here before we finish up next week with the entrepreneurship. You might have noticed today I start talking to you more about what I think, my opinions about some things. Some of you wonder, what the heck do I think about anything? I've heard from students in the past that what we're about to do is the toughest thing we do in this class because what I'm about to do is tell you why I think the value of your degree means anything at APU. In the Yemba program, we had a group of people last week that stayed after class. And when they stayed after class, their questions were about how they were going to look for jobs as younger MBA students. And I'm not going to talk about that, but one of the interesting questions that came out was this question. What is the value of a degree from APU? What is the value of this degree? Like, could, should I have gone somewhere else? Like, a little late, obviously. <laughs> you know, but, but what is it going to mean? Like, if I get a job, will anybody care? And we spent some time in, a, in the context of job searching, talking about what it meant to have a degree so young, in their case, with little experience. But I promised them, and I do it in every class at this time, that I want to talk to you about what I think is right about this program, what I think is good about this program. And this is the part where after seven and a half weeks of ducking and dodging what I think about things and looking like I rip everyone to shreds, and all the people who are conservative think I'm liberal, and all the people who are liberal think I'm conservative, nobody can figure out what the heck I am, now I'm going to tell you what I am. But let me tell you what my main goal is right now. I want to tell you what is the value of your MBA from APU and why do I think this is one of the greatest MBA programs around. This is the part where I get to come out and tell you something about what I think, what I believe, where I come from in this context. Because I don't talk about my own beliefs and politics and issues because what I want to do normally is spend time deconstructing all the different things the way we think. And it's helpful to us to do that so that hopefully now you'll give me just a few minutes, maybe a few more than a few minutes, about 45 minutes to explain to you what I think all of this means and that maybe I've at least earned a few moments of your time to explain why. Because here's the problem I see a lot of MBA students have, especially at a university like this where we have a faith background. Why are we here studying about how to make money? Isn't money wrong? Isn't money evil? I know you don't think that. I know you're not that naive. But the problem is if you're pursuing a degree that is about making money, and all of the examples that I keep driving through in this class are how should you figure out, use policy, the news, every event that's going on in the world to make money, is that right for APU to give you a degree and tell you your primary goal with this degree is to make money? And I believe the answer is yes, but it's a qualified yes. Let me show you what I mean. I'm talking about a biblical view of money tonight. What does that mean? You know, a lot of us think that a biblical worldview of money means that like, if you're a rich man, you got to go through an eye of the needle, you're screwed. That's what a biblical view of money is. But that's not the way the Bible is set up at all. In fact, most of us would be surprised at how financial the Bible is, how much text it has to do with money. Here's just a few examples. 16 out of the 38 parables that Jesus taught used money as the example that he was using. There are 2,350 verses in the Bible about money. That's more verses in the Bible than about prayer or faith, which we would think that's what the Bible's all about, isn't it? Yeah. Money is such a tripping point for most of us that they had to spend more time talking about that than even about faith and prayer, which is a difficult thing for most people to grasp. Jesus said it this way. Money is kind of a spiritual litmus test. 
The way he said it was, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. What that means to me is, a lot of us say we care about a lot of things. But I'd like to see you put your money where your mouth is. If I looked at your checkbook and asked you, what do you care about? I actually should know just by looking at your checkbook. Because that's what you spend your money on. That's what you care about. A lot of us would profess to care about things. Environmental concerns, saving the animals, I don't know, whatever it is you think you care about. Really? Because I think if you looked at my checkbook, I care about me. 99% of me is what I spend my money on, it seems. Just something to think about. The converse is true. Not just like, can I follow the money also, but what you care about and where you put your money is what you'll end up caring about. Here's what we think when we think about money. We remember this verse in the Bible. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Most of us have crossed out the word the love. We just go, hey, money's the root of all evil. Isn't that the way we say it in society? We just say money's the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Money itself is not evil. In fact, you're going to see throughout tonight, I believe that we don't embrace money enough sometimes And when we do, we do it for the wrong reason. That doesn't mean that you should shed your wealth. In fact, as Paul writes 1 Timothy, this verse that you see up here, he just a few verses down says these words, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Notice he doesn't say tell those people who are rich to ditch their wealth. He doesn't say that. He says, command them not to be arrogant or put their hope in it, but to put their hope in God. Rich people, people with wealth, people who can make money, have a place in the grand scheme of things. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. You see, our problem with money is we think it belongs to us. If you follow a biblical view of money, it doesn't belong to us. In fact, a biblical view says that nothing belongs to us. We're supposed to be stewards of money. That's what we are. We might possess it. We might manage it. We might increase it. We might utilize it. But we're we're never going to own it. It doesn't belong to us. Psalm 24.1 says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And yet we constantly think it's ours. That everything we have in this life belongs to us. Think about that. You couldn't even determine where you were going to be born. What country you were born into. What family. What social level. It didn't even, you couldn't determine that and yet it's determined so much about what you have and what you don't have and who you are. Everything belongs to God. So I guess the questions I want to cover tonight are, how are we supposed to steward this money? If we're really stewards, how do we do it? And what does it mean? Am I just here to do stewardship? That means giving. That's how most people put it. Like when you hear the word stewardship, it means that means, oh, we're doing a fundraiser with a big thermometer outside the church to raise money for something, right? That's stewardship. No. Stewardship tonight is how you are going to become a manager of wealth that belongs to God. Just like you would manage wealth for your employer with your same degree. And you see up here I said, should we avoid the temptation of money? The answer is no. 
Look at this. Parable of the talents. Some of you know this parable. Jesus told it. One of my favorite parables, it goes something like this. There's a master who leaves and goes away on a long trip. And he leaves three stewards in charge of all his possessions. To the first one, he gives five talents of money, a denomination of money. The other one, two. And the other one, one. Each according to his ability. And then the master returns after a long time and asks each one, what did you do with the money that I gave you? The talents. Each begins to respond. The first one says, here, you gave me five, I doubled it. Masters, please. The second one, you gave me two, I doubled it. Masters, please. Third one, master, you gave me one, I didn't know what to do with it, so I buried it. Hey, he's doing pretty good, isn't he? At least he didn't put it on red and gamble it and lose it, right? At least... At least, he didn't squander it and spend it. He just held on to it. What's wrong with holding on to it? The master is very displeased and says to him, You wicked, lazy servant. And he throws him out in parable land into a bad place called the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth and says, You're a wicked, lazy servant. Why? He didn't waste it. Yes, he did. Because he didn't invest it. That's what this master has wanted. Jesus is that master who is invested in each of us talents. Now we've heard this parable maybe before, batted around the church, maybe if you've ever been around it. We wonder, what does it mean, the talents? You know, we're thinking, does that mean like because I play the trumpet or something, that's what I'm giving back? I have these talents, these skills. It means money. Talents was a denomination of money. Jesus used it on purpose. He entrusted worldly wealth to these stewards. And then came back to check, what did you do with it? Some did well, and some didn't. And he says to the ones that didn't do well, I'm going to make a count with you, and you come up lacking. Here are the lessons from it. Notice three things about the parable of the talents. It's the master who gives them the money in the first place. It's not theirs. They don't have anything. They, don't, they possess things. They manage things, but they don't own them. The master owns it and gives it to them. The second thing is he expects them to create a return. Not asks, not invites, not hopes, but he expects a return to be made. The one who doesn't make a return, even though he doesn't lose it, is cast out. It's a high standard. You might say, but like, that's kind of unfair. Like, What if he was scared? He didn't know what to do, which is what the servant said. I knew you were a tough master. I didn't know what you would do if I lost it. So I got scared and I buried it. Why is it so hard? Because the master knows what we're capable of. That's why he gave each according to their ability, because he knows that it wasn't just that the other one was scared. He was lazy and he didn't want to do it. He's been entrusted with something and he sat on it third point, the whole investment, what the master gave and what it produced, belongs to the master. They all returned it back to the master. Nobody had any delusions that they were going to keep this. It doesn't belong to them. They get to steward it, not own it. What about you? What talents do you steward? I mean, you have money, I know. Some of you do. No matter how much of an amount, think about people who don't have that amount in this present life. But look at all the other talents that go beyond money. Look at your education, your job, your career, the training and how you make, invest, and manage money that you're getting right here. That's what this degree is for. 
There are lots of people that go to this school that attend other disciplines that don't know how to make money because that's what your training is in. You have a unique skill in being able to invest and manage and create wealth, maybe build companies like we've talked about, maybe manage companies, maybe excel. That's a skill and a talent. You have passions. In this country, I wrote down, we have an abundance of wealth and opportunity and relationships, even an abundance of needs, like the example that you just saw in trying to build a business plan around a need that exists in our society. And there's opportunities even to create wealth while at the same time you're helping people move forward. Jesus asks a question. He leaves it as an open question. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants of the household to give them food at the proper time? Who? Is it you? Is it me? Can we be that faithful and wise servant? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he'll put him in charge of all his possessions. That's what a steward is. Faithful, wise, and a servant. They're faithful by being obedient to the master, wise, and acting for the master. They're serving because they're in his service, in his debt. Not owning, just possessing, managing, and stewarding. So how could we become a wise steward? Because you've been entrusted with so much. How do you wisely steward it for this master? Some of you right now are thinking, I don't really care who this master is. I have nothing to do with him. Okay. He's still a pretty wise person. Listen to this wisdom about how to steward your own resources if you claim them as your own. A couple things that wise stewardship involves. It's an avoidance of materialism. Jesus said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. I think we know that as a society. Because we have that stupid bumper sticker that says, he who dies with the most toys wins, right? And we all kind of make fun of it because we think we're better than that person. Are we? If you looked at my life or your life, are we any better just because we don't have the bumper sticker, just because we don't advertise it? Isn't our life about the collection of toys and stuff? Aren't we the greatest consuming culture that has ever graced the earth? Isn't our appetite for stuff really insatiable. I don't know. Take a look. Favorite pastime in America is not baseball. It's actually shopping. For every single person alive in America, you could build a 16 and a half square foot store. Just put your name on it and they'll stock it with your stuff. And when you buy out everything you need, of course, on credit, you'll come back and buy some more. They could just put your name on the store and take it. Average American right now in America spends six hours a week shopping, 40 minutes playing with their kids. Look, this is the most depressing one. The average American spends 5% more than their income every year. Every year, cumulatively. The average American right now has $9,800 in credit card debt on a credit card that's probably somewhere about 12.5% interest. They're making less than a minimum payment. They're going in deeper into debt every year and 5% more every year of their gross salary. We keep sinking deeper into materialism. It's going to catch you if it hasn't already. Some of us were already into it enough where we know it's caught up to us. Materialism is bad because it takes our focus. It makes us love things and not people. It makes us love things and not God. But materialism, if for no other reason, for those of you 
who don't even care about God. Think about it from this point. Materialism will drive you into debt. We just saw the example, $9,800 in credit card debt, 5% more every year. Where do you think it comes from? We're not the government. We don't get to just print it. We borrow and borrow and borrow, and it leads us into debt. What's wrong with debt? Solomon, in his wisdom, said, the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Actual translation, slave to the lender. You know, for those of us who profess to follow a Christian worldview, we're always saying things like, Jesus paid the price, Jesus paid the debt. If he paid up the debt, why are we charging up the credit card all over again? Why are we indebting ourselves to a different master? Why are we putting ourselves in a place where we're so steeped in debt that we can't serve him? Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians. He said, you were bought at a price. That's what Jesus did. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. His last words. Aramaic, literal translation, the debt is canceled. It was a commercial term used by fishermen to say it's finished, canceled. So we go charge up again and get into debt with somebody else. Paul said, if you were bought at a price, do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man is responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. We were called to be free so that we could serve him if for no other reason. But that's debt. Here's the other one. I hear this so often from people in school, out of school, my friends that I work with and students that I've had. But as soon as, and then you fill in the blank, as soon as I get that tax return, as soon as I get that bonus, as soon as I get that new job, as soon as I move and do this, as soon as I cash out that one thing, then I'll be able to catch up. So I'm just kind of doing this for now. Right. James got you covered already. Book of James, he says... Listen, you who say that we're going to go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Isn't that what we all think? Next year, next tax refund, next bonus, next raise. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say... If it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. You know, I wish that all of us maybe sometimes had an idea of how much longer we had to live because it would really shape the way we thought. Because unfortunately, most of us live in denial and think it's always 40 years away. By the way, no matter how old you are, it's always 40 years away. All right? Maybe that made sense when I was 20. So now it makes sense as much anymore. And we think that next year, next year, you know what? I don't know that I've got next year. None of us know how many days we have. It's not our place to make the assumption that there will be a next year and a next job and a next bonus. It's not our place. We don't have control over that. So if we're banking on tomorrow, we're banking on something we don't have the right to bank on. It's like a runway. You know, If the plane doesn't get to a long enough runway, it doesn't make it off the ground. Our planes are so loaded down with debt and materialism and our runways are not as long as we think they are. We think it's just going to keep going. we got plenty of time and all of a sudden you run out of runway and it's a disaster. Look at the statistics on people passing on debt to their children when they die because they thought they had an unlimited runway. Even people like, you're 80 years old and you're still going deeper into debt and materialism because we're trained that way. Look, not all debt is bad. Let me, let me make some qualifications. 
Otherwise, the people in the finance department would kill me. You know, like financing a business, home mortgages, student loans, business credit. It's permissible. I never say it's good, but it's permissible because our economy functions on this. So it's part of the investment. It's part of the great talents we've been giving in this country is that we have capital to build companies and to build investments and to do things. Those are permissible. I put an asterisk next to the student loans, though, because some of us get so steeped in student loans that we can't even afford to do what we were going to do when we got there in the first place. I see that when I'm around campus and I see all these students who are like going to be ministry majors with a debt of $130,000, you know. At Pepperdine, we wanted to do social justice law and public interest law. And yeah, $150,000 in debt later, we're all working at the biggest New York and L.A. firms we could find just to make the payments. Harvard Law School, 50% of the entering class wants to go into public interest law at graduation less than 5% because it costs too much. So sometimes we make unwise choices even in things that we think are good investments. Yeah, they might be good investments the way the world thinks, but then you're ready to serve this master and you can't because you're steeped in debt. You're a slave to somebody else. The registrar's office at APU or whatever it is, you know? Where's Robert Gold when we need him now? He would kill me for this. That's why there's an asterisk, because it says, if you can't see it, it's really, really small. It says, like, results may vary. Check local listings for <laughs> Bad debt. Credit cards. Interest only. High interest. Deferred payments. You know, buy it now. Enjoy it in 2011, you know, the payments finally by that point. You know, that's. Enjoy it now here. Just take it now, take it home, and you'll pay for it later. We just keep adding. Look, even about home mortgage loans, you guys know these examples. Some of you have seen them in finance. If you could find a home in the area for $450,000, here's a six and a quarter percent interest rate, 30 year mortgage. Your payments over the life of the loan would be $997,000 with all the interest you're paying. If you just paid $300 a month more, you would save $144,000 in interest over the life of the loan. What do you do with $144,000? I don't know. You could retire. Or you could do something that really matters in this life and change the world for something good that will outlive you and your life. $144,000 can do a lot of stuff. Maybe when you finally go back and you meet the master who comes to you and says, well, how did you do? How did you do with all the money I gave you? You go, well, one of the things I did was I saved $144,000 off of my mortgage and I used it for something else. I would think that would qualify for good and faithful servant status. That you were able to do something different than everybody else who just bought into the idea that we just need to continually pay interest and debt and never get out of it. Where do I get 300 bucks a month? Sometimes we think like the power of money. You guys have seen this example. Maybe some of you in finance classes, the latte factor, right? They pick on Starbucks because they know that it's your guilty pleasure, right? Average person goes to Starbucks, 420 per visit. That's the average, 420. So they round it up to about five bucks and they say, if you just save five bucks a day, just five bucks a day, and just invested that money every single day, by the end of this 40-year lifespan of your work, you'd have like almost a million dollars in the bank. Okay, it's just an example. You guys know the time value of money. You're MBA students. Look, if you just move it up to 10 bucks a day, just 10 bucks, you're talking about $1.8 million, $1.9 million, and if you run it at 20, it's somewhere just shy of $4 million. $4 million on 10 or 20 bucks a day that you save. Well, where do you get 10 or 20 bucks a day? You don't go to Starbucks is their answer. That's why they call it the latte factor. I didn't make it up. There's something in your life, there's more than one thing, but at least there's something in your life that you can cut out to save a little bit of money every day for that. What do you use it for? Again, you could use it for you, but I'm going to make a pitch later that you use it for something bigger than you. That's just part of the way that it works. 
You guys, if you bought into the Starbucks concept, you know what it's all about. It's dessert. They just tell you it's coffee, so you'll buy it. Right? If it's white and it has whipped cream, that's a dessert. Okay? And if it looks like this with a wrapper, that's a cupcake. It's not a muffin. I don't care what you call it. It's not a muffin. And that thing that looks like a cookie that they call a scone, it's a cookie. All right. You're going there and getting a milkshake, a cupcake, and a cookie. And you're going, what did you have for breakfast? A coffee, a scone, and a muffin. Right? Okay. Living for ourselves. Jesus told another parable called the parable of the rich fool. In this case, here's another guy doing really well. Wasn't an evil person. Wasn't a bad person. Just a successful person. Who had so many crops that he didn't even know where to store all the crops. So he tore down the barns and he built bigger barns. And he stored up all his crops and he said, Now I can take life easy. I can eat, drink, and be merry. Isn't that our culture? I mean, if there was ever an eat, drink, and be merry culture in the world, it'd be us. We are eat, drink, and be merry culture. Consumer culture. Why? Because we love it. What is the outcome? In the end of the parable, God comes to the rich fool, who's not doing anything wrong. He's just living for himself. God says to the rich fool, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Can you imagine what a bummer this is to think you finally got it made and God comes to you and goes, you're an idiot. Your life is demanded. Let's go. We go now. That person is probably bummed out about a number of things, not the least of which they're leaving all this wealth behind. What would you do in that situation? Wouldn't you think, God, let me just give me a few more years. I'll just give it away. But too late. You had that chance and you didn't do it. You hoarded it. Jesus gives a dire warning at the end of the parable. He says, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. What is how it will be? Our life is going to be demanded from us if we hoard things and we are not rich towards God? Yeah. That's what Jesus says. I don't know if we take that seriously enough sometimes. This is our lifestyle. Eat, drink, be merry. So we do with food and drink. Party, lifestyle. This is my proposition. Maybe we need to be doing something totally different with food and drink. Maybe it's a different mentality that we have with what we've been given. Where do I get that from, by the way? I get it from the idea that, again, Jesus is going to come back and we're going to say this parable again. Who is the faithful and wise steward? Because there's a punchline to it. Who's going to give the other servants their food allowance? We have an obligation. We're not doing it. All right, let's look at the problem of savings in America. Got materialism, debt, and no savings. I mean, I wish we could be like the rich fool a little bit. We're saving something. We're not saving anything. Here are the statistics on savings in America. Most Americans, less than three months of expenses in the bank. You lose your job three months later, you're probably losing a lot more. That's a little strange. That's dangerous. Why? Is it because we don't believe in savings? No, it's because we believe too much in spending. Because we believe too much in debt and materialism. 60 million Americans have no savings whatsoever. None. That's like a fifth of the country. None. And I wonder if that includes the kids. I don't know if they put the kids in that thing. If they didn't, that would be even worse. Average American, again, spends 5% more than they make. 70 million baby boomers are reaching retirement with about $1,000 on average in retirement savings. Hope you guys keep working and paying Social Security because those guys are going to need you. Okay. So where am I driving all this stuff? At the end of 
the parable of the talents. The punchline is this. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. Jesus is describing this is the way the kingdom of God works. I'm the master, I go away, I give you talents, and after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts. People who are in an MBA program should be very comfortable with the word settled accounts. Jesus loves financial language. He's practically an economist. He keeps using these financial terms over and over because he knows they make sense to us. Settled accounts. Each person came forward and said, you gave me this much, here's what I made. I don't think that that's meant to be taken in just a purely figurative sense. I really think that's going to happen. There are other verses in the Bible that make it clear that that's going to happen, that he's going to come and check, how did you do? I put this picture up here because sometimes I picture myself standing on a hillside like this, like at the end of like Meet Joe Black, like I'm walking out of my life, right? You know? And there's Jesus waiting for me going, okay, come on, time to leave the party. I'm like, oh, she was so cute. All right, I'm leaving. <laughs> and I think Jesus is going to ask me, how do you think you did? I know he's going to have an answer. He's going to tell me either, you wicked, lazy servant, or he's going to say, good and faithful servant, good and faithful steward. But before, I sometimes imagine he's going to ask me. And I'm going to answer. And most of the answers I'm going to give, I bet you anything, no matter what it is, is probably going to be, I could have done more. The hard thing is, when we're sitting in a room like this, and we think about the future, and even if I told you when your future date was going to be, it doesn't happen accidentally. You don't just automatically achieve a life that's worth living. You've got to plan it out. I guarantee you it won't happen on accident. Because Jesus said it wouldn't. Again, taking another page out of the economics textbook and the business planning manual. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to count the cost. You probably heard that before, count the cost. That, you know what that means? That means you've got to beat yourself with a whip and wear a hair shirt and torture yourself. No. He was saying, you've got to calculate how to do it. Do you have what it takes? To actually be a follower of mine who's going to have a life that's worth living, who's going to hear good and faithful servant? He said these words. Again, financial. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? In business planning, we have this mantra. Nobody plans to fail. But everybody fails to plan. Jesus is saying the same thing. You don't start off your life thinking, hey, by the time I get to the end of my life, I want to do nothing. But that's what happens every day if all we do is continue just to bump along in life because there's always a distraction of something else. Part of it is literal, like in the financing, and part of it is he's using an example of a person who had to sit down and calculate, could he complete the project? Like before you start about telling people, I'm going to live a life that matters, you better sit down and calculate, do you have what it takes to do it? Part of it is literally financial, but most of it in a, in a figurative sense, in that, in that allegorical sense, is, and you have to have what it takes to be able to make this happen. Because he uses the same example. It says Here he says, if he lays down a foundation and he's not able to finish it, everyone who sees him will ridicule him. Saying this fellow began to build but was not able to finish. But look at the next example. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? There he switches from a financial just to a strategy. 
You got to decide. Do you have the finances, the strategy, the ability, the will to make a life that matters? And again, he frames it in a financial sense. All right, so let's say you were able to avoid materialism and debt and do all these things. Let's say you wanted to live a life that matters. Let's say that you see the future date when you've got to have this conversation, when you've got to settle accounts, and you decide, I'm going to build a plan, and I'm going to build wealth in some way. I'm going to invest what I've been given. I'm going to invest these talents. I'm going to create a return for the master. How do you give it back to him? How are you rich towards God? You just give it to your church, or what do you do? And I'm going to give you my opinion. I think you give it all away. How? First, we've got to start with why it's even so difficult to talk about giving. Like when I say give it all away, people are like, woo, woo, woo. Like, are you nuts? Like, you went over the edge. Like, we were kind of following you until that last point. <laughs> and you're just like, we thought you were going to make the big 10% pitch, but the 100, like, you nuts? Look, the reason it's so hard to give is the same reason that everything about money is difficult for us. It's because we think it belongs to us again. You know, Jesus, when he told the Sermon on the Mount, there are a lot of people gathered, and by the time he was finished with it, there are a lot of people who just took off. Because he said some things that are pretty darn crazy. I meet with a group of business guys. We do a Bible study. They're not Christian, just business guys. They want to look at the wisdom of Jesus to see if it applies in the business world. I thought it was very interesting to do that. I just started meeting with them, and we would pose different parts of Jesus' teachings, and they would evaluate, would this fly in the business world? How is Jesus, as a business advisor, without any background in faith, just reading his words? These words tripped him up. From the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. What? You're going to give them more than they ask for? You're going to go further than they, want, than they ask you to? You're going to give someone even if you don't know what they're going to do with it? Yeah, because it doesn't belong to you. He's trying to tweak our whole world view and say, you think it's yours. It's not yours. Don't get so stressed out. It doesn't belong to you. You're only managing it. So if somebody wants more of it than you think they should have, it's not your problem. It's not your stuff. Why are, you so, why are you so married to your stuff? You can't serve two masters, he said. can't serve God and mammon, materialist, possessions. We do, every day. We're struggling. We think we can do it. He's saying you can't do it. Just give up the ownership claim. Give up your sense of entitlement. It doesn't belong to you. These words make a lot more sense when you see it the way he sees the world. Like, what did you ever do to get any of this? I gave it all to you. Everything in this world I created. So how is it that you think that some of it belongs to you? Or that you think there's a sense of fairness and equity, like you can't have some of that. I'm worried about what you might do with it. What? Mostly we're just worried about handing it over. Remember he said, who then is the faithful and wise steward? See, look at the second part. This is the part we always skip over sometimes. Whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he'll put him in charge of all his possessions. You know, we look around the world, we see people who don't have anything near what we have. And we wonder, where's the equity in that? Where's the justice in that? Where's God in all of that? Letting those people continue 
Well, I think God's looking at us going, where are you in all that? Look at the verse carefully. Who's the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance? This country, this continent is so overabundant in its resources, wealth, its food, its prosperity, its opportunity, its ability. And there's other people sitting around the world waiting. Where's our part in that? Before we look to the skies and go, hey, God, there's a little bit of inequity here. He's like, you're right. I gave you too much. And you're not doing anything with it. I gave each according to their ability. You're not doing anything with it. Look at the flip side of this verse, by the way. Here's the second part that is not often repeated out loud because it's kind of a little scary. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming, and he begins to beat the men servants and the maid servants, and to eat, drink, and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. You know, some of us, even who believe in Jesus and believe in this Master and believe in a biblical view, we're thinking, man, he's not coming back for a while. Who cares? Let's just party for a while. I don't see anything happening. It's been so long, I'm not sure he's coming back. That's exactly what he was referring to. If you think it's starting to be a long time and you're starting to do whatever you feel like doing, you're not following what I told you to do to give the other servants their proper food allowance. You're just kind of partying and getting drunk and the gluttony is creeping back in to your consumption again. Guess what? I'm going to show up when you don't expect it. I don't know what to make of the part that says, and I will cut him to pieces. Wow, that's not the lovey-dovey Jesus that we preach sometimes, is it? I know one thing. It says this, just a verse later. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I don't have to tell you that the next thing that's come out of my mouth is that we have been given much. We have been entrusted with much. I sometimes think that God sits up there and says, I don't hear you people complaining when I give you too much. But I do hear you complaining when I ask for too much. Like reaching out and trying to solve the problems in this world that you have the ability to work on. How? You have a degree that creates wealth. You have a degree that creates opportunity, business, finance. You have a degree that creates jobs that can change economies. You have a degree that even if you did nothing but make money for your own account to be able to take care of people on your own. You have that ability. Many others don't. You're here training for it. What good would that degree do if you don't use it in that way? Stated another way, here's what Jesus says. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? What's the point? So, now that I've kind of made a little bit of the, let's give a lot of it away, here's some practical questions people ask sometimes. Who am I to give to and how much am I going to give? Just give me the bottom line. What's the bill? (laughs) (laughs) To whom am I going to give? Well, I'll tell you that I think you can make a case for any of the following. Sometimes we think very narrowly about giving. We think it's got to be given to an organization We're always wondering, like, well, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the money? Let me ask you, what are you doing with the money? 
before you're so inquisitive about what other people are doing and you're kind of like, well, I need to make sure it's going to a good place. Well, at least it's not going to Starbucks. Okay? But here's some organizations you can think about. Local church, missions, missionary, poverty relief, disaster relief, ministries, your family, your children, the needy, the sick, the hungry, the lost, the incarcerated, the orphaned. I can make a biblical case for all of these things. All of these things were priorities of the master. If you said, how do I give back to you? What is it that you cared about? Who are these fellow servants I'm supposed to take care of? Here's a list. You could pick one, you could pick all of them. You'd be spending your whole life. You're never going to exhaust this list. It's a place to start. How much? Everything. You're looking at me so skeptically. You know, the thing about stewardship that most people don't realize is, yeah, you can use some of it for you. You can live. You can have a house. You can have a car. You can use some of it to eat. You can educate your children. You can do what you need to do. Because stewards get to manage. They get to decide how the money should be spent. The problem with us is, first of all, we think we're owners. And second of all, we spend everything on us. So if you were a business and I came as an investor to invest money in your business, and you said, well, we need to use some of it so that we can pay the salaries of the employees, I'd say, okay, that's reasonable. Some of it. But I mean, I don't want to put all my money in the company and know that you're taking all of it in salary, right? I want to know that some of it's going to be used to build the company, right? You're going to promise me that, aren't you? Because otherwise I'm not putting the money in. You say, no, we're going to take it all in salaries and then throw big parties every year. Then I'd know you were a dot-com, you know? (laughs) And I know I'm going to lose all my money. As a steward, you're allowed to utilize the money in the way that you see fit. Remember, be faithful, be wise, you're a steward. Just not all of it, because that's what we do. We think, how much of my money should I give? It's not your money. My friend Eric Heron wrote this song that some churches sing that I've been to, and one of the things I like about it is an image in the middle of the song that really talks about the proper attitude of a steward. It says, everything that I've been granted, I will hold with open hands. Lifted up with joy to heaven and surrendered to your plan. Everything surrendered. Take it. Because it's not about this life. Some of you know the story of Jim Elliott, who's the missionary that went to Ecuador to try to evangelize the Indians and was killed upon arrival, basically by the Indian tribe. It was like the end of the spear is a movie that's been made about Jim Elliott's life and another documentary called The Gates of Splendor. And Okay. Jim Elliott wrote a quote in his journal before he died as he was explaining why he was going out into the jungle to meet these people. And his quote was, He is no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. He was talking about his own life in a way. Because even his own life he couldn't keep. It's going to be taken away from him. It's finite. It's going to end. He was giving that up to gain what he could never lose. But that applies to all of our stuff, all of our material things. You're no fool if you give up everything that you have in this world to gain what you will never lose in the next, including your life. Why do we think that this one's going to last forever? Why do we live here like it's the only place? You know, you go to a storage facility sometimes and you see people storing stuff like they just they can't get rid of it. It's an illness. 
It's a cemetery of stuff, like rows and rows and rows, like a mausoleum of stuff that nobody wants, but they can't throw it away. Because as soon as they throw away, what's going to happen? They're going to want it, right? So they pay 150 bucks a month to store stuff they don't want. 150 bucks a month is what a lot of my friends in other countries make per month. That would be a salary in some of the countries that I've been to. Now, I'm not talking about like poor countries. I'm talking about like even when I've been to Russia. That would be a good salary in many countryside villas. 150 bucks a month, that's what a policeman makes. And we're using it to store stuff we don't want so it doesn't clutter up all the stuff at our house that we do want. Is that insanity? We drive by, people are holding up signs saying 2,500 children are going to die in Africa today. And we just drive right by. Like We have a shooting at one school here. We have like a national week of mourning for 30 students. And I'm not saying it's not a tragedy. But 2,500 people a day should be shocking. Are we numb? Are we anesthetized? Are we dead? How do we not see this? How do we not care? How do we, is it denial? Do we just keep driving because it's just too big of a problem? But we have a couple of students in a campus and we're freaked out. It's on CNN for a week. The tsunami happens and, and people are, can't believe that 150,000, what is it, how many people? Like, yeah, let's see, and one day they say like the tsunami wiped out like 150,000 people in the tsunami, right? But 150,000 people die every month in Africa. There's no tsunami giving for them. There's no spike in giving for them. There's no fundraisers and concerts. Well, there's some concerts for them, but not nearly as much. Why? Have we just gotten used to it? Is that normal in our world? If it is, it's because we think it's normal. Because we think we can't do anything about it. Paul says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Every man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. A lot of times we've heard that last part, God loves a cheerful giver. Like, smile, you dummy, when you give that big fat check to the church. I like the first part. The first part is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Some people have interpreted that like, you give a lot, you'll be blessed back. I don't think that's what the verse says at all. It's another type of financial transaction. You want to make a small impact in the world? Give a small amount. You want to make a big impact in the world? Give a huge amount. How do you make a big impact? Well, you've got to get your financial life in order. You've got to use the talents that you've been given in this school, in this degree program, to start to create businesses and opportunities that provide wealth. Just don't hang on to it. Get ready to live on what you need to live on and give the rest away to make a huge impact. It's a discipline. It's hard because we love our stuff and we love our money too much, but awareness is the first step in starting to get rid of it and realizing that it's not going to last. We need to move on. I'll close with this. One of my favorite stories. I I love World War II, and I think some of you may have picked up on that because I love that era of our country. But if you saw the movie Schindler's List, you see a different side of it, right? Here you have a German profiteer during the war who saw that next door to him in the Jewish internee camps, they were basically working these people to death and then killing them. And he figured out that if he could by the value of their labor to work in his factory, he could somehow keep them alive until the end of the war. So he created the list. And for each person he put on the list, he paid a certain amount to the Nazis. They would bring him those prisoners, and he was able to keep them alive till the end of the war. Steven Spielberg dramatizes this in the movie, where at the end, here's Schindler leaving the factory as the war is over, and all of the internees who are still alive are standing around, wishing him well. Because he's almost he's going to be picked up as a war criminal, probably, because he was originally a member of the Nazi party. 
And here they're sending him off. And as he walks out, he sees all the people that he was able to save. You know, it's interesting because in that movie, Ben Kingsley, who played the secretary who kept the list, says to him, look at all the people that are alive because of what you did. There are 1,100 people here. You know, there's nothing in my life that's going to do anything close to saving 1,100 people. Or five. Here's a person we can see at the end of their life. What's their reaction? Their reaction is this. As they stand there, looking at the faces of 1,100 people that they saved, what's their reaction? Their reaction is, it wasn't enough. I could have done more. Ben Kingsley says, you did enough. 1,100 people are alive because of what you did. He says, it's not enough. What is not enough? I could have sold this car. This car, why did I keep the car? This car could have brought me two more lives. This pin could have brought me one more life. And in every item of materialism he looks around, he sees another life. But it's too late at that point. Because they're already dead. I don't want to wait till the end of my life. And that's the hardest thing, because it doesn't accidentally happen. You've got to plan for it every day. And think, how, when I get to the end of my life, and I'm standing in front of Jesus, and he's playing that role like Ben Kingsley going, look at all the people who are alive because of what you did. You know what I'm going to say. I could have done more. It wasn't enough. I could have done more. I hope Jesus says, you did enough. (laughs) And not like, yeah, you're right, you really blew it. I hope he says, you're a good and faithful steward. I think just out of his kindness and love, he's going to say that anyway. The real point is, well, I feel that way. Could I have done more? And I think the answer for all of us is yes. You have a tremendous gift in this MBA program because not only do you learn the things that other students learn, but you have it in the backdrop of something that will make a difference that will outlast you and your lifetime in this whole world if you choose to do that. It's a choice. And I feel like if you come to APU and you miss that point, if you take this program and you never hear anybody say it as clearly as I hope I just said it, then we all miss the point. What's the point of having it here? We might as well all just fold up the program and go to another school. Because I think there's a flavor of difference in this program, and I think this is it. It's set against the backdrop of the Bible. It's set against the backdrop of God first. Would you put God first in your life? even in using the skills and talents that you have in this program. If you will, then I think you'll make a tremendous difference that will outlive you, your MBA, your job, all of your life and into the next. And you'll see other people saying, look at all the people who are here because of what you were able to do. If you need to talk to me about your final paper still, come talk to me. I'm going to now pass out the grades from your last thing. And we'll be back next week to find out which one of you in your micro plan gets additional points